0: listening to a podcast of The View, where we discuss today's topics from an anti-racist, anti-oppressive, multicultural perspective. This podcast is brought to you by the Church of the Larger Fellowship. To subscribe,
1: visit questformeaning.org or search for Church of the Larger Fellowship in the iTunes store.
2: Hey, good morning. Good morning, viewers. This is Meg Riley. And I think it's going to be sunny Minneapolis today, coming to you with another episode of The View. We're going to take a moment to uh, say hello to our regulars before we move into today's topic. There's plenty going on in every neck of the woods. Asia Hauser, let's start with you. How is it?
3: Um, I'm Aisha Hauser and I'm in Seattle. Uh, It continues to be surreal. Uh, My adult, young adult children are now online learning and um, they don't love it, but they're learning to adjust because uh, they're both away on campuses. And um, so I say to them, welcome to my world, because now they're running around the house going, shh, shh, I have a meeting, quiet. I'm like, oh, so the last seven years when I've been doing that and you've ignored me? Karma. Welcome to the Karma Fairy, which I know has nothing to do with the virus, but this is us trying to exist people. So that's me, Michael, how are you?
4: Good morning, everyone. This is Michael Tino in Peekskill, New York. Um, I am here and alive and um, well, and that's about as good as it gets right now. (laughs) Uh, the, the, The first grade at Woodside Elementary School in Peekskill, New York is not actually doing online learning so there um so i i have actually been uh reduced to what what is much closer to homeschooling in that i actually am finding my own lessons for for the first grader and uh you know what it's going it's going i am not i am not a first grade special educator and there are good reasons for that um and uh i feel like uh I joked at some point in my childhood when Zoom was my favorite TV show that um, I wanted to actually live on Zoom and um, this is not what I meant. This is not what I meant. Uh, so life is okay and we're surviving here in New York. Christina, how are you?
0: Hi everyone, Christina Rivera. I'm coming to you from Charlottesville, Virginia. It's a beautiful spring day. Um, I'm doing well, you know, I'm I'm doing as well as can be expected in these unusual and eventful times. Um, I too have an office full of office mates that I didn't have before. Uh, So it's interesting, you know, having other folks at home uh, doing their thing and kind of coming and going and, you know, trying to encourage folks to like. Yes, get outside and breathe some fresh air, but not close air to anybody within six feet around you. And, yeah, I just remember I remind folks that, you know, everything in their biological imperative right now for our youth and young adults is to socialize and take risk. And we are asking them not to. And that's hard. That's hard to do. You know, just. From that standpoint, it's hard to do. From the standpoint of just what they're socialized to, um, most kids being in public schools or school environments, so it's it's hard right now. But uh, you know, we're all we're all in it together. Lori, how you doing? I'm
1: doing great, Christina. Considering, <laughs> so uh, I I'm out here in Phoenix and really. Uh, We've had some blessing of mild weather. Normally, we're up to 100 degrees by now, but that has not happened yet. The other thing that I am really appreciating is the the people in my community. You know, I live alone, so I don't have new house guests or you know office mates or roommates to to deal with. So um, that is it brings its own set of challenges, and I'm. So I'm feeling that isolation pretty acutely, I would say. I'm so, but I do feel very lucky that I moved into a condo community recently. So even though I'm not like as isolated, like I have like people, you know, just below my balcony, they'll visit, they'll talk, I mean, you know, at a social distance, they'll they'll talk about the plants and you know, that sort of thing. So it's just I can still be part of community on some basic level. And a, an example of what I've been able to do here in the last couple weeks weeks is I was able, I was still able to get out and go grocery shopping, but I, I have a friend, say, say again.
2: Can other people here, Lori? Oh, I, okay. I just lost sound, weird.
1: Oh, okay. I was able to uh, go go out and go grocery shopping for a friend who can't because she's had seizures and is on restricted driving. So I brought her a few groceries and she has backyard chickens and she gave me a couple dozen eggs. And then she also, she's like, is there anything else you need? I'm like, you're homebound, how can you help me? And she's like, oh, but I'm I'm kind of a prepper. I didn't realize as I was prepper, but I'm kind of a prepper. And she takes me to her garage and it's full of rice and beans and toilet paper. <laughs> so I, she gave me four precious, precious rolls of toilet paper and two dozen eggs. So I brought them back into where I live, which is closer to central Phoenix. And one of her friends, why she gave me more than a dozen eggs is because I also then passed these eggs on to her friend from her. And then uh, her friend came over to pick up the eggs and brought me a bunch of kale from her backyard. (laughs) And I'm like, this is the world I want to live in. always. So it really brings home for me the message that this time is so hard and scary and uncertain and we're continually reconstituting the world that we want to live in. uh, I am also the tech person today and so I'll be over on YouTube in the chat if you have questions. We'd love for you to post them there and I'll pass them into the panelists and here and our host, Jason, uh, for to be addressed. And you can find us on Twitter as well, though we don't get as much traffic over there. So sometimes I miss stuff. Uh, the best plan is to come into YouTube and then afterwards the show will go up on YouTube uh, and you'll be able to watch it in its entirety. One other thing I'd say is if you want to be reminded when we're going live on The View, uh, you can subscribe on our YouTube channel. There's a little subscribe button uh, right there below our pictures. So go ahead and and take advantage of that and then you'll get an email when we go live. Thanks, Lori.
2: I'll say a little bit more about Minneapolis here. Um, They, so I live a block from a lake. Minneapolis is, you know, has 10 lakes right in the city and they have shut down Uh, Car traffic around the lake and it's all bikers and walkers and skateboarders now and you know When you say this is the world I want to live in I wish that were always true I mean that's kind of my thoroughfare to get out of here, but I can figure out other ways and Before they did that it you couldn't social distance It was like the state fair down there with everybody, you know piled on top of each other on the walking and biking paths So I just I love that the city did that they shut down a couple of the lakes to cars and um you know they're just people out walking all all the time and um that thank goodness we're allowed to do that i was talking this morning to a friend in greece where in order to walk her dog or go to the grocery store she has to tell the government she's doing it and they give her basically a pass on her phone and everybody to be out has to have that and i said oh that sounds really repressive and she said that's what all the americans say but you know, we're safe here. And, you know, she said, Facebook already knows what you're doing all the time (laughs) anyway. So, you know, why is this worse? And I just thought that was really interesting because she said, because of that, aside from the Greek Orthodox Church, which is still having people kiss their rings and stuff and believing that because God loves them, they're not gonna get this. uh, Besides them, you know, people really are forced to, to socially distance. And so I've been thinking about that because every time I'm out driving, I see kids playing full tilt basketball down the block and um, I'm on this neighborhood listserv and they're like, call the police. And I'm like, yeah, right. I'm gonna be calling the police on a bunch of young black men. That's gonna happen, you know, but you know, I said, I'd be much more likely to stop and be mom and yell at them, you know, but every time I go there, there's like a different whole bunch of kids playing basketball. And of course, as you said, Christina, that's what, that's a healthy thing for young people to do, right? Like that, playing basketball, that's great. And then here we are in this time where, where our healthy instincts, you know, their healthy instincts in that case, to be together, to have fun, to laugh, to jump on each other, could potentially put at risk the people that they live with or the people they interact with. So yeah, it's just a, a tough and complicated time. And um I was just on the phone right before this uh, with the CLF affiliated ministers who are all over the world. You know, we have someone in Germany, Canada, the Philippines, the US, and Joseph Lyons, who's in the Philippines, was saying that they've started having um, food riots because the food is only getting to the rich neighborhoods. And so poor people are starving. And, um, you know, it's that's a country with a history of martial law. So, you know, it's, um, that's the kind of stuff I think that we, I, I at least in the U.S., in my segregated city, um, that could happen here, that, that only certain neighborhoods could have access to really basic survival stuff so um yeah it's just as we look into this and we said this last week as we talked about pastoral care that the the pastoral and the the political the justice work are one and the same in many ways they're it's not two separate things and um that you know, I'll just do one more time the CLF echoing cry. The more energy we're spending to try to do perfect online services in our church, the less bandwidth and capacity we have to be addressing profound needs from the community. So once again, this is me giving massive permission to people to not be replicating church everywhere. We don't, we don't need a thousand churches right now. Um, we need we need presence. We need pastoral presence everywhere, and then we need, in my opinion, um, to take this opportunity to try to create some revolution. So uh, it's it's revolution either way. It's gonna it's gonna things as they were are over. So how do we have a hand in trying to create the world we want to create now? So we've invited uh, Jason Lydon to be with us today. We also had another guest, Leslie Mack, who unfortunately is unable to be here. If you came to hear her, she will not be able to be here today. We will invite her later. We love her. She's brilliant. And today just wasn't a possibility. And of course, in this time for all of us, things change in a moment's notice. So um, Leslie, we're sending out love to you and we'd love to have you back sometime. Jason, I was so excited to see you doing a socially distanced protest uh, at the prison. And Jason, if you know him, has been engaged for decades now really in prison justice, prison abolition work and um, started Black and Pink, which is an amazing organization serving queer folks who are incarcerated. And so Jason, welcome. And tell us about what happened there in Cook County and anything else you wanna say.
5: Well, thanks so much for having me back on The View. It's really fun to be with you all and spend some time. Uh, so I'm here in Chicago, Illinois. I serve as the minister at the Second Unitarian Church of Chicago. And I also sit on the board of the Chicago Community Bond Fund, which is an abolitionist organization working to end uh, the violence of the criminal legal system while specifically focusing on Uh, the needs of people who are affected by pretrial incarceration. So really focusing on ending money bond and getting people out as uh, soon as possible. And so that it's not just rich folks uh, who get to get out of jail, but that everybody should be uh, free while they are figuring out how to navigate the violence of the court systems. Um, And so one of the things that we did was we had a interfaith vigil outside of Cook County Jail here in Chicago because they have not been letting out nearly enough people uh, that jails are kind of perfect places for everyone to die, to be honest, right now, this is uh, a system that is impossible for people to physically distance, it is a system where uh, people are sharing so much recycled air. It's just impossible for people not to get this infection once somebody else already has it. So we have 101 people who are testing positive for COVID-19 here in Cook County Jail. They've released a few people, but not nearly the numbers that are necessary. If we compare ourselves to say Iran, uh, where they released uh, 54,000 people out of their prison system in Iran. Uh, If we did similarly in the U.S. uh, to match that percentage for them, that was 22% of their prison population that they released in Iran in order to stop the spread of this virus. For us in the U.S., that would be 484,000 prisoners that we would have to release immediately. And they did it immediately. They picked a day and they let everybody out. Uh, Here in the U.S., what we're seeing is huge restrictions on... Okay, if we're going to let you out, you have to be of a certain age, you have to have certain types of convictions, you have to have this place of housing already set. Uh, And so there's so much getting in the way of actually letting people go home or to go wherever it is that they could go uh, to reduce the impact that this virus is having on folks. And so we had a gathering outside of Cook County Jail to pray, uh, you know, to have faith leaders coming together to say, we know that this is causing harm to our city, uh, that we recognize the prisons and jails themselves as places of violence and white supremacy and anti-blackness, and that we have a responsibility to challenge that. So it's beautiful to be with groups of folks in that way, and then really wanting to put pressure on the state's attorney's office, the sheriff's department, and the Cook County judges to say, we need immediate action. Uh, and so we had a good number of folks there. And indeed we were you know, trying to be as safe as possible, practicing physical distancing while also practicing social solidarity uh, with folks who are inside. So we wanted to be present, wanted to make a ruckus, wanted to get attention uh, because we are going to have so many folks die inside prisons and jails if we don't immediately take sw- sweeping actions.
0: So can I stop you there Anderson, because I think it's super important that people hear some, some of the nuggets of what you've said. Um, we had our governor in Virginia come on and then our um, attorney general come on and talk a little bit about kind of each of those barriers in the process of letting people out. And um, I think that that it's really important that people know if we stick with that process we, we just won't be able to let people out so you know i think there's some things in those processes that are great and there's some things that are like the intention behind them are great but there's there are other ways of um of achieving them so for instance um what you what you mentioned that uh, right now it's a lot of these um Processes are, are age restricted. So I know for us, it means that it's 65 years or older, um, is the, the population that they're targeting at releasing. Um, a conviction prior to 1995 um, is another, um, which, you know, both of those to me are just like, okay, we can get rid of those. <laughs> um, but one of the ones that I do want to talk about is um, the restriction around that there needs to be housing and um, that there needs to be a medical care plan for folks who are incarcerated and getting their care, for lack of a better word, their medical care, such however it may be in the prison system. And so there has to be a plan in place for those folks being able to get that same care or level of care once they're released. And I think those two areas are the areas in which yeah, I think we do need to have a plan for folks, you know, if we're going to just release folks. Um, has there has there been any conversation in your area about how to achieve at least those housing and medical care?
5: so to be honest, I would say I disagree that those are essential things to do for folks. Uh, I think it would be great if there was housing and medical care for folks as they were getting out. Uh, but we already don't have medical care or housing for uh you know, thousands, 500,000 people are homeless in the United States.
0: Yeah, uh, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting pausing.
5: Okay.
0: I'm not suggesting that we don't release people until those things are available, but okay. I am suggesting that, um, that, that we do have a responsibility to make sure that those things are available. I'm, I'm not saying that we should wait until that happens, but I'm saying, I, I think we do as a community have a responsibility to the homeless and to people who are chronically, you know, medically um,
5: uh, underserved. Absolutely, agreed. Yes, I too would love for everyone to have housing and medical care and fighting for that feels essential. And I think there are examples of places where people are trying to help folks who are currently incarcerated or, or who have loved ones who are currently incarcerated to, brainstorm and imagine where people can go. So for instance, here in Illinois, uh, there's the Illinois prison project, I think is the name of the organization. And what they are doing is they're encouraging folks to fill out this uh, form where if you have housing available in your home that you could be offering to somebody getting out, whether it's somebody you already love and care about who's inside, or you just have an extra room and you care about prisoner solidarity work, you can fill out these forms say what's available, uh, and that that's being shared uh, with kind of an assortment of different people, uh, including Illinois Department of Corrections uh, folks, so that they can expedite the process of getting people into those homes. Uh, So that's happening, and then community health centers are certainly a key place uh, of care right now. Uh, My partner is a nurse at a community health center here in Chicago, and so they're of course, seeing people who are getting out of prison once they're already uh, testing positive for COVID 19, or just in general, they're always seeing people who are getting out of prison as a community health center being where uh, the majority of poor folks get access to care. Uh, so I think continuing to connect people there is a really exciting opportunity. Um, and then obviously, we should all be pushing for uh, single payer universal health care for everybody. Uh, this could not be a better reminder of why we need universal health care uh, in our country.
2: So I just wanna mention for people for whom this might seem overwhelming, that there are also some uh, steps. There are some things that you can do if, you, if you're not able to engage in full-tilt uh, abolition work right now. Uh, one of them is there's a whole campaign to get phone calls to be free and available now. And uh, if you know about privatization, even in prisons that aren't privatized, the services all are, and phone calls cost an enormous amount of money and and often are not available at all. And so uh, free phone calls, uh, because visits have been stopped. So free phone calls is is something that anybody anywhere uh, can work on now. Also, we've promoted before, and we will again, the Mama's Day bailout that, when we get, if we get this $1,200 check that we're promised, you know, to really think about what could be done to um, stop cash bail with that. That's, uh, I think, you know, I I hope you'll give 25 bucks to CLF. We need to keep our staff on, (laughs) but, you know, um, there are people for whom that money could absolutely save lives and families. And so, so there, you know, there are things that everyone can do wherever you are, whether you're part of a, big coalition or whether you're just kind of sitting in your house right now saying, what can I do? There's just, there are phone calls you can make. Uh, there are, you know, people to contact at all kinds of levels and there are organizations I guarantee you in, in anywhere you are that are already working on this stuff and some really, really good, good folks to get to know. So I just wanted to interject that because um you know, we can have the big goals and, um and I'm, excited that people are, at least some people are getting freed at this time. Um, And we can push for more of that. And a lot of people are still gonna be incarcerated and um, even more out of reach. Uh, So, yeah, so far mail is still going into prisons. Um, At CLF, you know, since we're doing everything by mail, we really worry about losing that contact. Um, But yeah, it's, It is um, almost, I, I was reading a blog that a super privileged person wrote about, now that she's in her mansion for a month, she really understands what it's like to be incarcerated. And I just wanted to scream. I was like, oh, I would like to just have you read some letters that I received that, you know, we may feel a little bit of claustrophobia in our nice houses, but it has nothing to do with living in a brutal, cruel, authoritarian, random, uh, systemic, racist, just all of the stuff. And um, so I think it is a good time, maybe we can have empathy from our own feelings and that can lead us to say, wow, if I feel this here, what could it possibly be like? I'll never know, but what could I do to help a little bit there? And I think that's part of why this is a pastoral issue is that um, as meaning makers, as people who who are called to be part of a community and make meaning together, to think, To engage our compassion to care for people is, is serves its collective, it's good for all of us. It's not like largesse or you know, charity. It's like, how do I save my soul at this time by being connected to to the rest of the folks? I'm curious about um, Christina, you said you've been engaged in some of the um mutual aid stuff. Is that local that you're doing that, or what, what are you up to?
0: Yeah, so um, in response to uh, COVID-19 and what it's doing to communities, a lot of communities have created mutual aid societies. Um, there's there's um, actually a group that's trying to get together a map of all the different mutual aid societies, but you can Facebook, Google Mutual Aid Society in the name of your town or city, and you will almost always um, come up with a mutual aid society in your neighborhood um, the larger ones right now are focused on a couple of different um, areas. And Let me just i will back up and say mutual aid societies are built around the idea of reciprocity, that there are times in our lives when we need to be taken care of and there are times in our lives when we need to take care of others. And that as long as we are continuing to do that together, then there will always be enough. Um, that the idea of abundance and generosity is, um, is really that we already, and, it, and it's very in line with, you know, Unitarian Universalism and the idea that we already have heaven on earth here. We just have to make it so. Um, we just have to reveal it because we have the resources to do so. So um, mutual aid societies, uh, you know, are doing a lot of different work in a lot of different locales. Uh, the one that I'm participating with here in Charlottesville has been a uh, 2 um, we've gotten donors uh, to donate and then we've been issuing mini-grants of up to $200 uh, per individual no questions asked, you tell us you need the money you fill out a form, we send you the money uh, via PayPal, Venmo um, and that was super successful we sent out over $155,000 in uh mini grants. And then the second part of it that we uh, were working on was groceries, um, uh, either making deliveries to folks who couldn't get out to the grocery store because they had, you know, immunocompromised folks in their homes. Um, and so we would go and do their grocery shopping for them. Um, or um, folks who just didn't have money for groceries, we would go and do their grocery shopping for them and then um, uh, you know deliver that or provide a gift card um, if they did feel like they could go out and they just needed some help with that and for that program we've already distributed about forty three thousand dollars worth of um worth of groceries and that is from a group of people who before march 16th had never organized together you know so and and nobody in there, Well, there's a few of us who've done other kinds of organizing, but it was just like, what is the need? Who has the resources to meet these needs? How do we move those resources from the folks who have them to the folks who need them? And, um, you know, we threw up a Facebook page. I mean, it wasn't gorgeous. Like the first logo we had, it wasn't, it was a clip art logo. Like, you know, and now we have a Canva logo. Like it's not, you know, it's not brain surgery or anything. Um, but it is taking a look at your community and seeing what the need is. And then organizing with other people, like not recreating the wheel. There were things that, you know, food bank was already doing that we, Connected with them and said, you know, how can we make this um, uh, more effective um, and not recreate, you know, some of those wheels, but also look at the food bank and saying, okay, they're doing this. What population are they not serving? You know, because there's always populations that, you know, just aren't getting served through that. Um, and so I think you know, the the message I have from that is, you know, we have over 400 volunteers now for our mutual aid society and not all of them are working, you know, 10 hour, 12 hour days, like, you know, the lead organizers are. Um, Some folks are doing, you know, one grocery run for an hour and a half. Um, You know, some folks are, you know, making a flyer and it takes them, you know, 20 minutes. Some folks are making copies on their home printer and that takes them, you know, 10 minutes, half an hour. Um, there's really something for everybody to do when you're thinking about it from a reciprocal standpoint. Um, the next uh, big push that we are going to have is to move those, Meg, as you said, those um, stimulus checks that are coming to people from people who don't need it to um, undocumented folks um, who wouldn't have been able to file um, a tax return. Um, so there's a lot of people who won't be getting the stimulus checks because they were either so low income that they didn't have to file a tax return, or they um, couldn't because they're undocumented. And so we have a very tight, narrow focus of who we want to serve in that effort because, you know, we we could try and serve everybody, but but we needed a focus, and so our focus is going to be reaching out to folks and saying. We're going to do a one-to-one match. You give us your stimulus check. We give it to to a person who needs it. Like, it's going to be that
2: simple. So, Christina, when you say we, it sounds like there's some leadership group empowered to make a decision like that. It's not just a Facebook group where everybody can. So there's a a general group that anybody can walk in and help for half an hour. And then it sounds like you're on some kind of a steering committee or something. Is that so there is a
0: steering committee, and the steering committee is made up. We basically broke into teams. So the steering committee is made up of a representative or two from each of those teams, um, who get together three times a week and say, you know, where where are we at? Um, where do we hear the need is, Um, you know, what have we heard from our communities, we ask ourselves questions like, what does our reach look like? So we take a look at um, all of the asks that we get, are getting in, and we take a look at the addresses to make sure that we, our reach is into our areas that we know are lower income. We look at um, the, number of uh, monolingual Spanish speaking households to make sure that we're going into those. We look at the requests for other languages. So we're really focused on making sure that we are our reach is getting where it needed to. At one point we actually even paused because we realized our reach wasn't getting out into the counties, our rural areas enough. And we wanted to pause and make sure that we were getting that message out and then we went, went back into, um, into the giving.
3: So yeah, so this is neighborhoods or towns. I'm curious what you, cause then you said something about the county. So is, are you taking like an area of Virginia? Yeah, so right
0: we started with, um, Charlottesville city and Albemarle. And then what we did was we quickly realized it was going to be difficult to figure this out. So what we did was we said anywhere that our regional libraries serve um, because our regional libraries go out into the rural areas and we're in central virginia and we're surrounded by rural uh, areas anywhere that our regional libraries serve we were going to serve and that's what made us take the pause to make sure that we were getting out you know into those communities um so i think it's if it, you know if you're doing this work or interested in doing this work you know that's one of the things you want to make sure that um, you're asking yourselves continually is how is our reach? What is it looking like? And we're not the only ones doing this. Like it is not something super special happening here. Well, it's super special to us, but <laughs> but there are mutual aid societies, you know, in in Seattle, in Las- like all of the major areas and a lot of small towns as well. So um, this is something that you use can be doing right
2: now. Let's talk about that. If if say a UU social justice group uh, decided they wanted to get engaged with this now, um, let's just talk about some kind of do's and don'ts about doing that. Because um, I think what you're describing is a broad-based community decision-making um, and um, really looking at things in a very broad way, which coalition work, you know, I always think of Bernice Johnson Reagan, coalition work is done in the streets. You do not go to a coalition to drink your mother's milk. And and I feel like um, some of our congregations are looking for mother's milk <laughs> in places that it's gonna hurt if that's what you go there for. So I just, um, I'm thinking about, that's really an amazing, beautiful story. And, and I'm gonna look up Minneapolis when we get off of this. Um, and I'm picturing some of our congregations A, the assets that our congregations have are amazing, you know, to bring in, and some of the same needs for control and perfectionism that that I'm pleading against in terms of uh, online worship, I would also plead against here in terms of uh, replicating, um, you know, maybe just take a look at the characteristics of white supremacy culture as we go into these coalitions. Um, So, Yeah, I'd love to hear other people engaged in this locally. Lori, are you? I think you said you were.
1: Yes, actually I am. Uh, And I did exactly what uh, Christina said. I went on and did a search and found three groups in Phoenix who were uh, at least advertising that they were active. And this was really early on in the people's awareness of uh, COVID-19 so when I got there to the groups, some of them weren't as active as others. And then what really happened was that the organizers I knew uh, before I went out and looked for mutual aid, they started forming their own little mutual aid groups and those are the ones that are active of course. (laughs) So we have one specifically for the LGBTQ community here and we also have uh, a more general one for or organizer, well, not for, but of organizers that are associated with other kind of known groups who do a lot of this kind of work. Uh, for example, Food Not Bombs, the people who are involved in Food Not Bombs are, are sometimes involved in mutual aid as well, because there's a lot of overlapping principles and ethic around that. Uh, we've been... Uh, mostly, I I'm totally impressed, Christina, with the with what you've been de- uh, describing, with the amount of capital you guys have been able to redistribute. That's amazing. Uh, our group is not. I'm not sure. It inspires me. I, I want to set our sights a lot higher. <laughs> uh, we our group is very active right now in mask making, um, and is partnering with a group here called. Uh, oh, I'm gonna. I'm blanking because it's really early out here. I think it's called fabric. I, I think that's what it's called. It's it's a, a very radical uh, group here in Tempe that uh, does, they're, they're allowing and getting a lot of people who don't have sewing machines but still know how to do things to come in and use their equipment and make these masks that are being requested by the uh, hospitals because PPE is so limited. Um, so yeah, that's a a big one for us. And then the food is huge too, uh, here in Phoenix, one of our really kind of cool, you know, trendy, fancy, usually pretty expensive restaurants, uh, Barrio Cafe is, um, they have completely turned their kitchen over to a free kitchen they've shut, I mean, of course, restaurants are now shut down, except for takeout is still available. So they can still be raking in money. They're, you know, they, they have a huge menu. People love their food. And they've just said, nope, we're feeding our community. And they just, they completely, they don't, they don't give any food away to people who don't need it at this point. It's literally a community kitchen now. So I'm really amazed with this, how people are stepping up. I shouldn't use that language, but how people are really moving into the answering the call of this time.
0: Yeah, so um, just a tip for folks, Um, the way we were able to get to that number um, was we started with, we found a donor, we found a $15,000 donor, and in Stanton, which is an even smaller city than here, they found a $100,000 donor, but whatever, start with whatever you have. So we found a $15,000 donor and we used that as a match. And so we did a double your dollars, which people love in fundraising. If you can do a match and tell people that their donation will be doubled, love it. And so we started with that and we did the thermometer and it just started building. And once it was clear that we were in fact sending this money out, people who are like in town were hearing about it. Um, the city and county governments and our local um, community foundation came to us and said, we've got resources, but our distribution networks are so traditional that we would only be able to send out checks and ACH, you know, direct deposits to people. And that's just for people who have banks. Um, you are actually putting, you know, money on people's Venmo cards and, you know, PayPal and doing some cash deliveries. And so what if you all do our distribution for us? Um, and we said, sure. And so we are now in a $1 million partnership with our local community foundation to distribute um, at least a million, maybe upwards of
1: that um, to folks in our community. That is amazing, Christina. That is just amazing.
0: So that's like, you know, you just start small and show that you can do the thing. (laughs) And then you go looking for the folks that have the real money um, and say, you know here's what we can do and we're doing it. And, you know, we had all the doc, you know we had all the proof. We had people who were saying that we were doing the thing and, you know, we did it in a week and a half. And so, you know
3: Creating those partnerships is really important. And you also don't need big donors because in Seattle, a Jomo Luo just threw up a GoFundMe, her and her partner, Gabriel Teodros, and they said, hey, we want to help Seattle artists. And within days, it was a few hundred thousand dollars and they had to partner with a a nonprofit to help distribute the money to local artists. So even if you did it, um, um, people just, send what they could, uh, you can end up with still that, that amount of money because people do want to help and they don't know how. And I think it also helps folks anxiety and the people who have the means send in some money. So it is awesome. If you can get somebody who could write a hundred thousand dollar check and don't be discouraged if you can't, because there are a lot of people who want to give what they can as well.
4: And I think it's also awesome if you can, you know, put together a community organization that hasn't existed before like while well, everyone is stuck in their house but not everyone can do that either. Um and I you know I looked it up while people were talking and I the last time I could find a, an active mutual aid society in the town I live in was 1918 during the flu epidemic. <laughs> so I'm like okay, maybe it's time to recreate it, but maybe it's also a matter of doing accountable work with the organizations that already exist um because there are organizations helping people in my city and i know that they're here um and whatever funds we can put together from people's stimulus checks or people's generosity or whatever can be funneled to people who need it um through the organizations and and the the mechanisms that exist here like i know my school district is still feeding all the children in peakskill um so i know that uh any family and they, they they release um statements regularly like any family that that needs breakfast and lunch can pick up breakfast and lunch every day in in my town um Uh, And I know that there are uh, food banks and food pantries and other organizations that are getting money to people. So, um, you know, I think this is this is to me an opportunity if if we and our congregations don't already have accountable relationships with organizations in our community to reach out and just say, how can we help? And then do what they tell us. <laughs> you know, I, I, Unitarian Universalists struggle with that sometimes. Uh, and that's part of that white supremacy culture that Meg was talking about. Um, but now it's just time to like call people up and say, hey, I notice you're doing this work. How can I help? And if they say send money, send money, right? And if they say we need volunteers to go to the stop and shop, to shop for people, then that's what we do. But it uh sometimes it's not up to us to to recreate everything and to reinvent everything. It's it's up to us to just ask.
5: So. Also, thanks so much, Michael. One of the things I also want us to lift up is this really unique moment of talking about the language of mutual aid. I mean, this terminology is explicitly anarchist terminology, it came from a late 19th century, early 20th century Russian anarchist, Peter Kropotkin. And we're talking about anarchist communist ideals and economic visions shaping what we're doing in a crisis. And I think for predominantly liberal, Unitarian Universalists, the idea of anarchism often feels scary. And I wanna say, you're doing it. We are doing anarchism uh, in this moment. And I think that that's a really important part of this story to not get lost. and while I appreciate so much the idea that we, you know, respond to what local nonprofits say and direct service organizations say, and I think it's really important to see how mutual aid and direct service is different, um, and that mutual aid is really about developing authentic relationships of accepting support as well as providing support. And I think that's one of the things around prisoner solidarity work that I think is such a key place of learning that practice. Because when we start writing letters with prisoners, we stop thinking of ourselves, those of us on the outside, as helping prisoners, but being in a real authentic relationship, that they are transforming our lives just as much as we're striving to be part of transforming their lives. And we do work on the outside to fight the prison system, just as they're doing work on the inside to fight the prison system. And so when we're doing this solidarity work on the outside, I think and mutual aid work with each other. When we are the person who might have more money than somebody else, when giving money, it's not just about helping them, but liberating oneself of one's own wealth is a transformative and beautiful experience. Uh, And it is about also, I think, recognizing the beauty of uh, that mutual relationship, which is how it's mutual aid. And that, you know, I'm gonna do this for you, you're gonna do things for me, we're figuring this out together. And maybe it's not, I did something for Meg and Meg did something for me, but I did something for Meg. And Christina is like, oh, Jason, you know, I know how to do this thing that you've been needing. And we're all part of the same network and we're supporting each other. So I think that's really a key piece of this is that we think of it as yeah, mutual. It's a mutual relationship, not just uh charity. It's not saving anybody. This isn't the time for thinking about things like that, but it's really this exciting moment of practicing practicing anarchy.
0: I'm so glad you said that. (laughs) I'm so glad you said that because I think that the folks don't get the the really different model that it is in terms of reciprocity. And that it is not, you know, we're just not we we say we like one of our talking points, if anybody asks us, it is this is not charity. This is not um, anything other than all of us taking care of each other. And and that is, you know, that is the best of Unitarian Universalism, right? And so, you know, as you use, trying to plug into that is, is part of deepening our faith and deepening our experience of our faith and how, you know, the sacredness that comes with being able to think about what it is that we have to give. And when I say give, I don't mean you know necessarily financial resources, but what is it that we have to give? Um, and so that we can open ourselves up to receive.
1: So uh, Jason, I'm also very glad that you mentioned about um, it's opening ourselves up to receive aid. Because I think that, for me personally, is one of the biggest challenges. Most times when you join a mutual aid group, the first thing you do when you sign in is say, these are the things I can offer and these are the things I need. And that is a very vulnerable thing to do. Uh, so, and to really take a fearless moral inventory of your needs, and know what it is, where, where, what it is that you need, and what you're willing to rely on other people for. And I'm in such denial of, that I have needs <laughs> most of the time. <laughs> I'm so, I mean, th- I work on this in therapy. <laughs> I, I'm so focused on, um, you know, putting compassion out there into the world, I, I often overlook, you know, my own needs and what, what can, I can do, what I can receive. And so I just, for, I think also I'm not alone in that. I think in Unitarian, for Unitarian Universalists, we we've very much internalized the self-reliance and, and that sort of value from our society. So mutual aid is, I recently attended a Zoom webinar for uh, talking about the principles of mutual aid, put on by the Highlander Center, which was fantastic. Uh, unfortunately, I think the live stream got, uh, as uh, one of my anarchist friends so lovingly called it, zucked, meaning they they <laughs> they muted it out on Facebook uh, because of I I don't know, but I'm guessing politics. Honestly, um, some r- very radical ideas were being. Uh, Talked about in that meeting, but if they have it independently over on uh, Highlander Center, I highly, you know, encourage people to look it up. It's very. It was. It was just a bunch of people who do mutual aid work talking about, you know, why they do it, how they do it, how they approach it, the principles of it, and it it was just really important for me to hear how how it's being done around the country. And and Christina, you fit right into that with what you're doing as well. Thank you for that. Uh, look into how it's, it, it is in your neck of the woods. And I yeah. want to say that for, oh, go ahead, Christina.
0: I think it's really important, Lori, what you said about um designing in and being able to be vulnerable about what you need. Um, and, and that, it, that is a practice that is a spiritual practice um, that is being done in community, uh, in mutual aid. And, and so I think, again, you know, as we're seeing how to live our faith as we use out in the world, that is something that we can bring to this, um, to mutual aid, because a lot of times there's a lot of unchurched people in mutual aid. Um, And so being able to um, be a witness for Unitarian Universalism in mutual aid and and adding that as a spiritual practice is really, um, is really important and and bringing that back into um, our congregations. We Each team opens and closes with what we need, Um, you know, after we've made our report of what we're doing, we close with what we need, either what we need personally or what we need as a team, Um, you know, and making yourself vulnerable um, to each other is, is super, super important.
2: I'm learning a lot and I'm excited by what I'm hearing. And I wanted to go back to what Michael said about other kinds of organizations, which are a different model in a way. But I also think for those of us who are used to being managers and in charge, uh, being followers actually is serving us and meeting a need that we don't know that we have. And so asking someone else what they need and listening to it and respecting it actually is a gift uh it may be a need we haven't identified and we wouldn't check in with, but I will say, uh what a gift it's been to me as I've aged to just say i don't know i I don't know the landscape anymore you lead i'm I'm back here behind you um that there there are stages of life where followership really um is an amazing spiritual teacher, and um so I, I think. Um, if there isn't mutual aid where you are and you don't want to start it, that finding an organization and, and respecting that and really seeing that as a spiritual practice in and of itself is another route to go. I'm just not wanting anyone to hear this and think, oh, that won't work where I am because there is, there is meaningful, loving, generous soul building, um, and I'll say work, but really it's life to do wherever we are. And uh, no one teaches me that more than the incarcerated members who are amazing leaders. You know, I always say the CLF prison ministry has grown because of leadership inside. It's nothing that we do. Um, and if everyone did that kind of sharing and generosity, what what a faith we could be. So um, yeah, I just, I don't want anyone listening or watching later to think, Well, that won't work where I am, because there's just, um, if you're alive, you're connected to other people. So,
0: and, and, you know, there. so one small thing that folks can do if there's nobody else around you organizing, and you're just like, I need to do something, there isn't anything, take a look and see what landlords are doing. Um, You know, what are landlords doing in terms of supporting people? Um, to, you know, waive rent or do a deferment of rent and, you know, start a pressure campaign to get the landlords in your areas to waive or defer rent for April. You know, uh, rents are due today and tomorrow or for May, because we're going to be in this for the long haul. Um, and that you don't need a mutual aid society to do. Um, you know, it's, it's a lot more helpful. Like there was a meme going around about, um, the SNAP benefits and when people should go and do grocery shopping, and that is helpful. But if you want to be really helpful to people who are using SNAP benefits, them not having to pay rent or being, um, you know, charged rent this month or next month, that would be super helpful. And that's something that that you can organize without having anybody else. You know, if there's no other organization going on in your area.
2: One of my little one person projects is these KN95 masks, which are readily available from China, but which the US won't use for hospitals, um, that you can get them, you can get quantities of them, I'll I'll share later on YouTube uh, website to get them where you don't have to go to Amazon, I did go to Amazon, but apparently you don't have to, Um, and just put them outside my door whenever anyone delivers anything. <laughs> Say, please take a mask if you'd like one. Um, I mean, it can be that simple but to just look around and see who you're touching and how you can reach out with, with some kind of love and generosity back. Um, I, I think we've heard from some amazing organizers today and I'm just really, really excited by what you're doing and every single person can make a difference.
1: One of the things that uh, Janine Gelsinger here in Phoenix has done while, I mean, not while, but like up until she started experiencing symptoms of COVID-19, uh, she had, all it takes to, to practice mutual aid and she proves this is um, some flyers, some tape, or maybe a staple gun and in her apartment community, she just put up flyers and said, "Let's let's all meet, and you know, virtually, <laughs> and 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 start sharing needs and needs and resources. And so this literally can happen. as part of you know a very small community to start with, and then moving into something more. You never know what happens when you pull people together uh, to to really share ideas and figure out how to how to come together for one another." The, the other piece of that is um, uh, Black Lives of Unitarian Universalism recently shared this in other organizations and it's been passed around is uh, this idea of figuring out who your pod is and then mapping pods out into your community. And that is a, a building block of mutual aid as well. So we'll post that resource in some of the pod mapping resources uh, to, the, to the chat and in, into the show notes.
3: I also want to name that the idea of caring for each other and mutual aid is radical. Like, what does that say about modern day society? That simply the act of caring and giving people basic needs or offering each other in reciprocity basic survival needs is radical. And that to me, just if that's not a a case for dismantling this violent extractive capitalism we've been living in the last few hundred years, I don't know what
2: else is. Say it, Aisha, that is a great uh, note to go out on. <laughs> it really, it is, um, yeah, a culture of giving and generosity. It's It's what we say, so now we get to live it. Yeah, it's exciting. Anything anyone wants to say before we sign off for the week?
1: Do you want to talk about uh, the commission? Yeah. Uh, they're coming oh, next, we next week.
2: We yeah. Aisha, you want to say more? Uh, so
3: the ne- over the next few, uh, not every week, the next few weeks, but over the next few months, uh, the commission will be coming on and talking about different parts of their report. I'm not sure which part will be next week. I forgot. But next that would, week, that we would be the to...
4: commission on institutional change. Oh, <laughs> Just for for out, people out there in Viewland who don't speak our language.
3: Thank you, Michael. The Commission on Institutional Change, which was convened uh, the spring of 2017 after the um, UU white supremacy teaching spread across our denomination, uh, they have submitted their report to the UUA. It will be published by Skinner House. And they will be coming on next week to um, talk about one aspect of their findings. And we're going to hear about all of them over the
2: view over the next few months. Thanks, everyone. Jason, thanks for coming. I'll have you again sometime. Absolutely. Take care, everybody. Give and receive. Be kind.
3: has been an
0: episode of The View. If you would like to learn more about the CLF, visit questformeaning.org.